0: From the McCourney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman.
1: I'm Candace Watt-Smith.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are joined on the show for the second time by Chris Fitzsimon, the director and publisher of States Newsroom, which is a collective of news sites in states across the country that specifically focus on policy issues and covering state legislatures. So Chris is joining us today to give us kind of a bird's eye view of some of the legislative fights and battles that are happening in states across the country over voting rights. As we've talked about on this show, throughout the past year, the pandemic has changed a lot of how we vote, not just in the U.S., but around the world.
0: So, uh, yes, yeah, states made all kinds of provisions to facilitate voting during the coronavirus pandemic, as did countries around the world. Some countries delayed their elections or even canceled their elections. Uh, but in many countries, they just did what they needed to do. I mean, just yesterday... In the Israeli election, they had drive-through voting. What I think is really kind of interesting and important about what's going on here is, first of all, what kind of gets lost is we did a great job in running our election. Mm -hmm. You know, when you consider the fact that our elections are run mostly by volunteers, or at least volunteers play a huge role in it, many of whom are older, (laughs) that, you know, the pandemic was raging at the time and that states were scrambling around in a highly- politicized and partisan environment to come up with a set of rules, would we have over 30 court cases, Candace, that decided that there was uh, no problem with any of the elections, maybe a small minor problem here or there? The results were certified in all 50 states. We did a great job. Yet here we are. It seems to have become a huge political issue.
1: Right. The thing about it is, is that I find also what's, I hate to use the word interesting, is that there also seems to be a evolution in the rhetoric and rationale around voter suppression tactics after this past election. So in the past, after especially after Shelby v. Holder in 2013, the rationale was voter fraud, which there is no evidence of voter fraud and there has not been any evidence of voter fraud. And as you've mentioned, that this is one of the most secure elections that we've had. Now the rationale is we need to enhance the reputation of the vote and we need to enhance the perception that we are more secure. And what that has mean, you know, there, of course, there are multiple paths that we could take. One path would be to provide more resources And one path would be to provide more polling places and more funding and more opportunities for people to vote. But that's not what we see. We see that there are less opportunities, that people are making really audaciously ridiculous policies. For example, making it a misdemeanor to provide food and water to people who are standing in long lines for voting. So... I don't know. We were talking last week with Danielle Allen about the crises of democracy, and I'm really glad that this week we get to zoom in on one of those crises and just unpack it and understand what the heck is going on.
0: Yeah. I guess maybe it would be useful to also sort of lay out a little bit, Candace, that this struggle over voting rights right now is, and I think this is a little unusual, going on at two levels of the federal system. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing these battles in the states, and we just know from a good deal of pretty solid political science research that states that are Republican-controlled, especially if they have significant minority voting populations, are the most likely to make voting more restrictive. We've known that for quite a while. We see it going on again, and Democrats have been extremely unsuccessful at winning state level elections. And so they are kind of a bit at the mercy of the Republicans within these states to set up whatever rules it is that they want to set up. At the same time, Democrats have now kind of taken this battle to the federal level with two voting rights bills, H.R. 1 for the People Act, I believe Mm -hmm. would be the name of that. Is that right? And Mm -hmm. the John Lewis Voting Act, which for some reason I know is H.R. 4.
1: So maybe it's worth just outlining this a little bit, that Mm -hmm. H.R. 1 is essentially designed to produce some sort of kind of standardization, a standard baseline for what states are and are not allowed to do. For example, H.R. 1 is designed to expand access to the ballot by expanding voter registration to make it opt out, rather opt in making a federal holiday for voting, 15-day minimum for early voting. And of course, states could probably do more if they wanted to, but they couldn't do less. It calls for a redistricting commission that has an equal number of Republicans, Democrats, and independents at each state. There's ethics reform, there's campaign finance reform. And so essentially what it tries to do is set kind of a national standard, The John Lewis Act, on the other hand, is a response to the Supreme Court's majority decision in the Shelby versus Holder by making important amendments to the Voting Rights Act. And the reason why Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act was struck down was that the Supreme Court basically said this formula is based on what someone did in 1964. And that's not fair. And these are old things. And so you need to come up with a new formula and the John Lewis act does that so that it can produce a preclearance for the entire country. If a state has many voting rights violations within the past 25 years, then they would have to be under preclearance. And I just was digging into the language of the act recently. And I think it's really good because quite frankly, Even though the states that were covered in the original preclearance still manifest similar patterns in efforts to disenfranchise voters, there are many other states that hadn't been bailed in. And this act would ensure that more states are under the scrutiny of the federal government and the Department of Justice to ensure that people of color, people on tribal lands, language minorities, people with disabilities have equal access to the
0: ballot. Yeah, that's a really good point because the original voting rights act and the preclearance procedures were mostly about southern states that had right a tradition a Jim Crow tradition. And the new H.R. 4 would, John Lewis Act, would open up the states that have supervision by the uh, Justice Department. So, Candace, what's been the Republican response to H.R. 1?
1: Oh, their response has been the Save Democracy Act, which is H.R. 1 in reverse. So where H.R. 1 wants to ensure automatic voter registration, The Save Democracy Act would prohibit automatic voter registration. It would require voter citizenship verification, require social security numbers. It would prohibit states from sending out unrequested absentee ballot. It would not allow for people to collect ballots for people who needed help with their ballots. So no ballot harvesting, I guess, is what people would call that. There's all sorts of things. So basically, it's, yeah, the opposite.
2: So, I think we've laid some of the high level foundation here. We'll go now to the interview and hear from Chris about uh, what specifically is happening in the States, and then maybe come back and talk a little bit about uh, where we might go from here. Let's go now to the interview with Chris Fitzsimon. Chris Fitzsimon, welcome back to Democracy Works.
3: I'm glad to be back with you.
2: There's lots to talk about when it comes to voting restrictions that are going on in state legislatures right now. The Brennan Center identifies more than 250 bills without making this like a six-hour podcast to go through (laughs) all of them. As you're looking out over the coverage across states' newsrooms, organizations, are there buckets that you put these things in or you know, trends or bigger categories that might be helpful to help us get the lay of the land about what's going on here?
3: Yes, sadly, there are. And the buckets have a lot in common. One is that it is a Republican effort to make it more difficult for people to vote. I mean, that's the big bucket. And the sad part of the second part is that more people make it especially more difficult for people of color and disenfranchised populations to vote. That is galling any year and horrible. But what's sort of really bizarre to me this time is that they've never had an argument about systemic voter fraud in any expansion of the franchise. We see that year after year. But after an election during a pandemic, when states went to extraordinary circumstances and an election that was scrutinized, as no election has been scrutinized in my lifetime, by whether it was Trump's forces or Republicans generally, and they were unable to find any significant voter fraud, even according to their own Republican attorney general, was charged with finding it. Yet now we're coming back after probably the most successful, at least successfully run election, where it opened up the vote to many more people and gave people more avenues to vote. Now we're coming back and saying somehow we need to tighten all the restrictions and make it more difficult to vote. I find just especially appalling. And the rhetoric, we could also do a six-hour podcast just on anecdotes, but my favorite or least favorite, maybe, of Republican lawmaker in Arizona saying it's the quality of the vote, not the quantity of the vote that matters. I come from a state, I live in North Carolina, even though states new we have an office here and an office in Washington, as you know, and then outlets around the country. And it's not too many years ago that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals called out our legislature for attacking people of color's right to vote with surgical precision. And I think we're seeing that precision and we're seeing a broad swath. We're sort of seeing both things this year in states like Georgia and Arizona. Iowa's governor is the first one to sign it. For goodness sakes, we're literally reducing the hours on Election Day. What is the justification for giving people who work hard every day less opportunity to vote? So this is really unprecedented. I'm glad there's so much attention, but I'm worried that so many of us are still focused, not us particularly, but so many folks around the country still think of this as a national problem when all these decisions are made at the state level.
2: Yeah, as we've seen, and as you just said, state politics has gotten a lot of attention over the past year, thinking about Mm -hmm. the governors in the early days of the pandemic and then secretaries of states. I think people went from not knowing who these folks were to them being household names for some people now with legislatures and the issues there. For folks who maybe haven't paid attention to state politics for as long as you have, how much of what we're seeing is I don't want to say run-of-the-mill, but stuff that tends to happen over and over again in state legislatures versus what's kind of new for this year, or has it been happening all along and we just haven't been paying attention?
3: Well, it has been happening all along, not with the volume and to the degree and all at once, but this has been going on for a long time. This has been going on since the Voting Rights Act. This is why we had to have the Voting Rights Act. We've seen this in various ways, and it's always couched generally under preventing fraud or Stopping widespread fraud, which nobody has ever proven has really ever happened in any significant way. I do think we're seeing specific things targeting the changes that were made during the pandemic with mail in voting. I think that's been a big push that we have seen. But we've had Republican and Democratic states that have had very successful mail in votings for years, for decades, and nobody's ever complained. I always think about Colorado as one, but Arizona has a lot of votes cast by mail. And all of a sudden, there are Arizona Republicans, many of whom have been elected under that system all of whom have been elected under that system, are now complaining about the very system that has elected them. It's never difficult to find hypocrisy. Sometimes in politics now, there's so much hypocrisy, it almost is the rule rather than the exception.
2: As your organization's reporters are out there in these state capitals, when did you start to get the sense or when did they start to get the sense that the other shoe might drop here? As you were saying, there were all these expansions put in place during the pandemic for mail-in ballots and drop boxes and all these things. Was there always kind of a thought that, oh, yeah, this stuff isn't going to last or they're going to try to unwind it at some point?
3: Absolutely. And we have to always put this in the context of we had, what, more than 160 members of Congress who voted to nullify the election, in effect, the presidential election, and they are supported in many state legislatures. They're the same sort of folks are in the state legislatures. I think we knew this was coming. I'm not sure if anybody anticipated the volume and the sheer just forthrightness by which they are doing this. There's so many issues that we could talk about. We don't want to get bogged down in the legislative process, but I was noticing in Georgia, they released a 93-page bill and gave an hour's notice to look at it. They put all the election changes in one legislation. So they're using all the legislative tricks that they've used in a lot of other issues and settings. But I don't think people were surprised that it happened. I think people were surprised by the audacity and the volume and the things that they are saying out loud. One of my most stunning things, I've always been amazed, and Arizona's doing this in a strong way now, they want to knock people off the voting rolls if you hadn't voted in two elections. You should have the right to vote or not. You should have the vote if there's nobody you're happy with or you're working or you're ill or you're out of the country or whatever it is. That should not be a criteria, for goodness sakes, not to have to vote again without having to go through the bureaucratic process. We've had a thing in North Carolina and other states for a while where they'll have a far right group do mailings to people's addresses on the voter rolls. And if they don't answer the mailings and that somehow all of a sudden, if you get that mixed up with junk mail or don't trust it, as most people rightfully wouldn't, then that's now a criteria. So there's no limit to the creative ways that they want to disenfranchise people.
2: Sticking with this thought of the state election boards and the secretaries of state and all these bureaucratic positions, these folks are traditionally scrupulously nonpartisan and they go out of their way to try to talk about how nonpartisan they are and, and try to emulate that in their actions. We certainly saw this in Georgia. And I'm just wondering, given that history and that precedent, how much capital do these folks have to really push back against some of these more nefarious forces coming from the legislature?
3: Yeah, well, I think they have some. I think the Georgia Secretary of State certainly acquitted himself well in the presidential race and in the Senate runoffs. But it's not like he's been a champion of expanding voting rights as Secretary of State. But he did do his job. And I think you're right. A lot of these people are proud that they do their jobs, that they run an efficient system. They think of it as it is, which is a vital function of our government. What could be more important is determining who runs our government and that our voices are heard. And I think they take those jobs very seriously. And now they're being confronted with folks who want to make that much more difficult. I was always astounded that somehow the conspiracy theorists that thought the election was stolen had a lot of Republicans apparently participating with part of the conspiracy. They're the same folks So it's just such a I mean, the one thing the pandemic taught us is that we can have elections that are run that allow people of various ways to express themselves without fraud, to make sure that our elections are safe and secure and yet allow more people to participate. So why in the world would we want to go backwards now? And that's the question I think our country has to wrestle with.
2: What are you hearing from your readers? (laughs) Granted, people who follow states' newsroom organizations might be more inclined to be interested in politics and these types of things, but are you getting a sense at all that this is maybe resonating more with people to the point you were making earlier, or that they're starting to pay more attention or think about what they might be able to do to exert their own voice, their own power to push back against the legislatures?
3: Yeah, I think so. And I think the point you raised earlier about the generally nonpartisan boards who do this I think there's some great awakening happening among people who weren't that political, and they're wondering why in the world is X happening, and then they read, well, now it's harder for my neighbors to vote, or the folks down the street to vote, or the community center used to be open on Sundays, and we used to get up together, and everybody used to go vote there after church, and they don't want to let us do that anymore. Why is that happening? So it's gone beyond frustration. I think people are now informing themselves and being educated and being involved in the process and making it more difficult. And I think, frankly, some of the folks who are trying to change these laws are going to have to face some political price. I think they will pay a political price. I think it it extends to gerrymandering and a lot of the other sort of the way we organize our government. I do think we're in this era of people learning more about the process, which is so important and when it's happening and not just after it's done and there's nothing they can do about it.
2: You mentioned uh, legal challenges before. Are we starting to see any of that activity bubbling up? And how much more of that do you think we'll see play out in the coming months?
3: Oh, I think you'll see a tremendous amount of that. I think the vast majority of these things will be challenged in state and federal court. So it'll take a while to have these go through. But the problem is, just like with gerrymandering and or redistricting abuses, sometimes the problem is the courts will let an election or two go on while these things are pending. So you get people in place who are arguably there under nefarious, with nefarious laws or laws that shouldn't be held up or who are later struck down, but they're already there and they can do things. They can pass laws. They can make it more difficult for them to be removed from power. They can change the laws to try to assuage the court's concerns. So the courts aren't the answer. It's part of the equation. But I do think most of these bills that restrict the right to vote will be challenged in state and federal court. And that's already happening. At least the organizers and the legal teams are already assembling and doing that.
2: And speaking of organizing, what are you seeing from civil society groups, groups on the left, to try to say, okay, like, let's assume that these restrictions do go into place. How are we going to change our processes, change our tactics to be able to deal with the system as it might look?
3: Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of things. One is supporting the legal efforts and being plaintiffs in the legal efforts is one thing that will happen, certainly. Another thing it will happen is that people who are determined and who have been fighting for their lives to vote are not going to be easily dissuaded from the right to vote, and that there will be efforts to, even with these restrictions, to continue to grow turnout, to continue to get people to do all they can so they can then overturn the laws that make it harder for them to vote. So I think you'll see a massive organizing effort, and you already are in all these states. Georgia obviously has one already. And I think it's playing a key role in opposing some of this legislation that is so bad. But I think in other states where people haven't really thought of it as much, you're seeing a lot more people and a lot of you mentioned civil society groups, voting rights groups, people of color organizing. Who who, I mean, they've long been organized, but organizing around these issues because it really does speak to the fundamental part of our democracy. If you can't choose your leaders, you're going to have a hard time enacting policies that make sense for you and your family.
1: Are you ready to co-create the world we want to live in? Then join our community at Our Body Politic, a podcast by and for women of color that offers a new view of the news. We're making politics personal with me, host Farai Chidea. Each week I get real with women you need to hear from, like Senator Tammy Duckworth, Representative Maxine Waters, and actor Anna DeVere Smith. Subscribe to Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Have you seen any effort or evidence of attempts to challenge this from the right, from moderate conservatives, the never-Trump kind of coalitions?
3: I think they have spoken out, but obviously I think they should speak out a lot more. I think there are a lot of moderate Republicans who are caught now trying to decide, as on a lot of issues. I think there are moderate Republicans in their legislative caucuses who are speaking out privately. A handful are speaking out publicly but it feels a little bit like it's evolving toward one of those litmus tests for the Republicans. I can't think of a very, I may be missing some, but in state legislatures, there hasn't been any that I'm aware of, and I am stand to be corrected, but there certainly hasn't been a, a large push by moderate Republicans to stand up. And maybe they're doing their work behind the scenes in the political process and the committee process and all those things. But we certainly need moderate Republicans. We need all people of goodwill. This is not obviously a Republican or a Democratic issue, or it shouldn't be. But unfortunately, in the society, the way it's headed these days, that's the way it, it always feels or is always presented. The never Trumpers, they are playing some role. I guess I would like to see them play a larger role than they have played. But you got to think about when you look at Congress and what happened and the fact that those folks are still in, largely in power in their caucuses and they're still calling the shots.
2: Yeah. And even thinking about, you were saying, putting political pressure on these folks, who is going to run to challenge them and how much of an issue might this be? Is it the kind of thing where people are going to forget about it by next fall when the uh, next election comes around?
3: Yeah, that's what I think that's the challenge. That's what they're hoping. And that it's hard to get people to stay engaged. But I think that that's the challenge of organizing groups and citizen groups and civil society and everybody from Common Cause to the Poor People's Campaign and and everything in between. And I do think folks like Reverend Barber are speaking out and making this an issue. That is the challenge. But, you know, I'm always amazed that when there's a voting machine that breaks coincidentally at an African-American precinct, folks don't leave. They stay in line. It is very hard to dissuade people who are determined to vote. It does deter people from voting, but I think there are a lot of determined people, I guess is what I would say, who are going to overcome this. And we have to count on that, but we have to count on the organizing to make it not nearly as onerous. It's just astounding that we literally are still debating whether or not people should have the ability to cast a ballot about who makes decisions about their lives. And we are still doing this, and it's 2021. And we just showed in 2020, which was not a perfect election by any means, but we showed that we can expand the ability of people to participate. And now we're trying to rescind that expansion which I think is literally one of the biggest scandals in our democracy in decades.
2: Yeah, it just goes to show this sort of closed loop media ecosystem we live in. Do you think about that at all? As Somebody who runs a news organization, how do you reach folks who might not be inclined to see your information otherwise?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we do all we can and we partner with as many organizations as we can and we partner with the Black press and the Latino press and we do all we can and we want to do more. I thought well, another direction, I thought you were going to go. The other thing is sometimes, I'm sure we are guilty of it on occasion, but we have to be careful in the media how we talk about these things. This isn't really a debate about voting practices. This is a debate about voter suppression and whether or not people have the ability to vote. They have the right to vote. The question is, are we going to allow them to exercise it? Or are we going to infringe on it? And I'm really struck by there's been some pretty effective, I think, media criticism written by some folks about just the way the broader the framing of this it's not a debate about the voting machinery. It's not a debate, the system of voting. It's literally a debate about who we're going to make it more difficult to vote for. And I think that it just goes against everything that we claim to be for in a democracy. And I think it's, it really is the defining issue of our age in a way, along with grappling with our racist past, which is all part of the same issue in a way, but is allowing people to participate in their democracy and not making it more difficult for some groups.
2: So how does that play itself out on a practical level as your reporters are out there covering these legislative sessions? How does that kind of lens that you were just describing make its way into the stories that you do day to day?
3: Yeah, well, I think part of it is making sure the voices of the community are heard and that we listen to people, not just ourselves or listen to the political leaders. That's one. And the second one is I think putting all these and we are far from perfect. And I sometimes lament that we don't do as good a job as we should, but putting these issues in context. As I mentioned, it's not a debate between two senators in the Georgia State House. It's not a dry debate where both people have points of view. It's literally, and we have to cover what people say, but without the context, I don't think it's nearly as meaningful. The, the second line of every story has to be about who's disenfranchised or what the truth is, what happened last time, that there is no fraud that they're claiming, or that what's the justification for kicking somebody off the rolls, or why can't people go after church and vote if the goal is to have a participatory democracy? So I think that it's the context and the history and reaching out to all voices and community folks as much as we can and bringing that together in our coverage, which is difficult day to day. So that's why there has to be follow up stories after you report about what happened that day at the legislature or have that context ready and put it in or cover the protesters and explain who they are and where they're from and what their points are.
2: So, Chris, we have talked many times on this show before about disconnects between what the people want and what legislators want or what elected officials want. Wondering, do you see this situation about voting rights and voting access as one of those disconnects? And is it the expectation maybe that if the people kind of articulate dissatisfaction with these types of policies, that the elites will come back around in the end?
3: Well, I think they'll only come around if we stay after them. Florida is a great example of that for years and years. It was, I'll tell you quickly, but when we were very first starting our, this whole organization and our Florida outlet was relatively new. One of the first days we had a new reporter, a young reporter, go to the commission where people had to go to ask for their voting rights to be restored if they were a felon. So this young reporter went to the first meeting, the editor said, I don't know, why don't you go cover this? Everybody's there. The elected state officials in Florida sit on this commission, explain the whole story. So the the young woman went and she came back to the newsroom and she said, well, I was there when an African-American man in his 60s stood before the commission and asked for his vote to be restored. And the first question asked to him was, how many children do you have by how many different women? This was a state elected official of the state of Florida. And the young reporter told that to the editor and the editor said, what? So literally the third or fourth day after we published, that was the story, which then became a giant national story. And that was the way African-Americans were treated in Florida. This guy had long paid his dues. We could argue about whether he should have been voted before that, but just as a a case study. And so that helped in in a way, the organizing effort that the people of Florida voted to allow felons to have their rights to vote restored, And the legislature and the administration decided, well, we're not going to listen to the people. We're going to add additional burdens. We're going to make sure all fees were paid. We're going to do everything we can not to make people vote. Now, I hope what happens and will happen in cases like that is that the people will be furious that they made a decision. They voted. They wanted this to happen. And the elites, as you mentioned, are not letting it happen. And I think you'll see continued organizing around that. I think that's another giant issue just in many states about people's right to vote if they've been incarcerated. And I think you'll see that that will be a, another flashpoint. I think we're making progress on that. But you're right. It's a cliche, but people never give up their power easily. The people in power, especially the elites that have it. And we're seeing tremendous organizing efforts around the country to change that. The organizing effort around Florida was incredible. I don't think a lot of people thought that would pass a couple of years ago, and it did. And now those same people have to make sure that the elites keep up their end of the bargain, and that's where the media and other folks have to hold them accountable and demand answers as to why they're not allowing that to happen.
2: So, given all of the injustices, inequities we've been talking about, what do you think are some of the ideal policy solutions here? Is it HR one? Is it the John Lewis Voting Act? Something else?
3: Yeah, well, HR one and the John Lewis Act would be places to start for sure. But I'm not speaking for anybody, and I'm not even speaking. I probably should be even more informed and have a better answer. But to me, as long as a vote can be safely cast, and we have just shown that it is, the presumption ought to be allowing people to vote ought to be the rule, not the exception. And you ought to have to prove that there's a problem instead of claim that there's going to be problems if you do all this. I mean, I've never understood, for example, why is an Election Day a holiday or why isn't it on Saturday? I've never understood that as long as I've never understood that. Even when I was a kid, I didn't understand So you have two jobs and you're a single mom. Tell me how you're going to get to the polls and get your kids. It doesn't make any sense. And then we've tried to create all these other things, thank goodness, to make it easier for the single mom to vote. And now we want to take most of them away. Well, we still should have those additional opportunities, but the very core, why don't we have a, a holiday or a weekend or figure out other ways? So I guess my short answer is we should do all we can. And I think there should be minimum standards that every state has to meet. H.R. 1 does that, I think, maybe not enough, but certainly starts that process. It's ridiculous in this computer age that if you forget to register, you can't show up and register and vote. Registration is nothing but a barrier to voting, really. Why do you have to register and then show up to vote? So there are all sorts of those things. And those are all left over from the era when we didn't want especially black people to vote, but we didn't want a lot of people to vote. And a lot of those have accrued some kind of weird institutional credibility, but people don't ever ask the question about why is that true in the first place? I've never really understood that. Why do we vote on Tuesday? Why do you have to register and go through this long process, then you show up again? All those things. I would start with John Lewis Act. H.R. 1 are great places to start, but I think we just need to challenge the fundamental assumptions about how we have elections and what the point of an election is, which is you know to make it as easy as we can to give people the opportunity to participate in their own government, regardless of how much they make or what they look like or where they live and all those things. That has to be the fundamental truth that we start with, and then we have systems in place to make that happen. And we we did a lot of expanding because of the pandemic, and it showed us that we can do it without fraud. We can do it in a way, it wasn't perfect by no means, but we can do it. And we not only did it, and then we had the most scrutiny of how we did it, maybe as we have ever had because of Trump and all of his colleagues and all the courts and all the commissions. So we've known we can expand the franchise, but I think we need to go way beyond that and explore the fundamental sort of aspects of how we hold our elections.
2: Well, Chris, thank you for all the work that States Newsroom is doing to help keep us informed about what's happening in state legislatures. And thanks for joining us today to talk about
0: it.
3: Well Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that was very interesting. And for anybody that's been following this carefully, there is not a huge amount that's new in there in terms of what's going on in the States. But Chris and his colleagues are really uh, doing a great job keeping track of it and reporting on it. And I think recognizing the importance of the moment in terms of how much is going on right now in a very short period of time. This is a a kind of outpouring of state legislative activity on voting restrictions that we've never seen before at one time. At least that's the way it's kind of lining up.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that he said that stood out to me is that he said something like it used to be lip service saying that we want everyone to participate in democracy. And now It doesn't even feel like that's a shared value anymore. and
0: A shared value among the public or among elected officials?
1: Right. And that's, I think, is the thing that we need to figure out. I guess this is an, an empirical question that we could answer with data and surveys. But bringing back also the conversation that we had with Danielle Allen was that it is important to separate what elites want versus what the average citizen wants because they have different incentives. I don't know. I mean, I know that you all yeah. or we <laughs> at the Mood of the Nation do surveys around these questions. What have you found?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to that. Let me just quickly respond to that nice framing by Danielle Allen about the different incentives, because I'm not sure that the public at large is as concerned that elected incumbents be reelected mm-hmm. as elected incumbents are that they be That's right. And so one of the problems of putting the control of elections, just like the control of drawing legislative districts in the hands of the people that are in political power right now, is that the obvious incentive is to maintain their position. And if that means playing with voting rules in one direction rather than another, that's what they're going to do. But yes, we have done some polling on this, and we haven't asked specifically about Voting rights, but rather we have been asking what it is that people value about democracy. And we are actually finding a pretty big difference that is both generational and partisan. And I think those two things are closely related because one party overrepresents older people and the other party overrepresents younger people. I guess that's a way of putting it. But whereas older people, when you ask them, what do you value about democracy? their answer is going to have to do with something about freedom, rights, and liberty.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. And this tends to be people that are older. And this also tends to be Republicans. Younger people and Democrats, though, have a different response. And that is, you ask them, what do you value about democracy? They'll say things like voting or a popular will or majority control or equality of voice or something along those lines. And I think this is significant. I think it's significant for a couple of reasons. One, because whenever you see something really different in one generation than another, you think, oh, this could be where we're going in the future as through the obvious mechanisms of generational change. But it also, you know, it really feels to me like maybe we're moving towards a party system that comes to be defined along the lines of what it means to be a democracy.
1: Well, that is fascinating fascinating and also a little disturbing I think and one of the things that comes to my mind for example is one of the first conversations that I had I think with Chris which was about Hong Kong and we were talking about how you can have yes the rule of law right that there are some people who care about the rule of law but not necessarily the participation of Mm -hmm. citizens and so yeah, I guess like being a person who cares about popular will and people having a say within constraints, right? Because we also don't want the majority trampling on the rights of the minority that, yeah, if we have parties that just have totally different understandings of how democracy is best lived out, that yep. is really troubling.
0: Yeah, two points. Uh, first, that you find it fascinating. Let's hope you're a reviewer too. But. Uh, I I do remember Ancho talking about a, a generational difference in Hong Kong and that to some extent, maybe this is a phenomenon well beyond the shores of the United States. And let's remember, too, there were a whole bunch of reports that came out last year. A lot of it, I think, came from the same study, but nonetheless, that had shown across many democracies that the young were less supportive of democracy. And one idea that we've been playing with is perhaps that has something to do with a different set of expectations about what democracy offers you and what it means to be in a democracy. And as we're in a system here that is set up in many ways to retard majority control, Mm -hmm. and now these kinds of voting restrictions move further in that direction, you might expect younger people to be disappointed.
1: Michael, do you think that this move of 253 introduced bills and this stance on restoring our faith in elections, because people have purposely eroded the faith in elections in the first place, will backfire?
0: Well, yeah, that's a great question, because I I actually wonder if part of what we saw in Georgia was a reaction to Georgia's recent history of trying to make it very difficult to vote. Mm -hmm. And within political science, the way we understand the importance of things that make it more difficult to vote is that it raises the cost for an individual to go out Mm -hmm. to the polls. And some of the point of these voting acts is to make it more difficult in ways that disproportionately affects different parts of the population. So voter ID is going to be a lot harder for people who live in cities who don't necessarily drive than it's going to be for people that live in the suburbs and spend their lives in their cars right? I mean, to put it simply. And so there's a cost that's going to be involved in getting it. And, uh, you know, the Washington Post did a great story a few years ago when Pennsylvania for a short time had voter ID before the courts knocked it out. And the Washington Post followed this woman in Philadelphia as she had to take an entire day off from work to try Mm -hmm. to figure out how to get a driver's license. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so this is a high cost to voting. But just because the cost is high doesn't mean that people won't see the benefits of voting as far exceeding the cost. And if they recognize that people are intentionally trying to make it more difficult for them to vote, that may well increase for themselves what they perceive as both the importance of their own vote and the benefits that they receive from going out and voting.
1: So that's one way that it could backfire is that it does mobilize people to vote. I think the other way that it could backfire is that it demobilizes the wrong people or the people you didn't intend to demobilize. So if the Republican Party is increasingly is getting more votes from people who are low income, who are from declining towns and cities, that this is not going to be helpful for those constituents. And so we may see demobilization of the people who tend to or are increasingly supporting the Republican Party.
0: That's a good point. I mean, part of the, I just utter small-mindedness of some of these restrictions, like on mail-in voting, you know, anybody can use it. And so you can use it to get people out to vote, just like the other side is going to use it. And in fact, many states with Republican senators and Republican representatives at all levels of government have used mail-in voting for years. So, I mean, there's no reason to think that Republicans can't figure out how to vote by mail or aren't willing to do it.
1: Yeah. And I think also this goes back to several of our conversations about asking the right questions and ensuring that citizens are trained, are taught to ask good questions. So for example, why do we do things this way? Why do we vote on Tuesday? What's the justification for kicking someone off the voter rolls for missing two elections? Why do we have to register in advance? I mean, and I think that if we sat down and answered some of these questions, we would see the history that a lot of the things that we're doing, I mean, some are, were to enhance the vote and some were to suppress the vote. And a lot of what we do, we think that a lot of these things are common sense. They're just the way that we do them and that they can't be changed. And the fact of the matter is, is that many of these things could be changed and probably ought to be changed to ensure that more people can have a say in the way our government is run. All
0: right, so let's leave it there. Thank you to Jenna and Chris for a very interesting conversation. For Democracy Works, I'm Michael Berkman.
1: And I'm Candace Swatt-Smith. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler, And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.